Let's open our King James Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48. Today we have the last two of Isaiah's 40s. We had 10 of them. Two are today. We shall likely not pass this way again. At least I will not pass this way again with you. The Lord's given us this opportunity to go through the 40s of Isaiah. Ten of the best chapters in the Bible, a section that's different from most of the Bible. And it's about over. I hope that you have paid attention, learned what is in these ten chapters, and made some effort to review it. Our minds are such that without reviewing, it quickly goes away. Isaiah chapter 48. Without any introduction, because we've had so many, and there it is of little profit to us, and it takes time, and we have 48 verses to cover today, let's get right into the first lesson of this chapter. These 10 chapters do not mention Sennacherib, do not mention Assyria. They're about Babylonian captivity that was still 100 years away from Isaiah, and Cyrus the Persian delivering the captive Jews after 70 years there. And so these 10 chapters mention that event a great deal, and there are also prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ in these 10 chapters, like there were in the first 39. And then after this, it will continue to emphasize the Lord Jesus Christ even more. So over the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, the mentions of the Lord, the Messiah of God, will increase. And they're increasing in these 10 chapters. And we've seen them. I like chapter 49 considerably more than 48. And I shouldn't say that starting off with 48, because that isn't very encouraging. But I'm just going to tell you the truth at all times about the Bible. And while 48 has its place, we're going to do our best with it right now and seek to enjoy it until we can say amen and reassemble for 49. As soon as I arrived here this morning, I was asked, could you just do 49 for both services, and then maybe later you could catch us up on 48. 49 is great because it involves more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 48, let me read to you the first eight verses that give us the first lesson. And the first lesson is, God has to reprove and rebuke His nation for their sins, and why he gave them such fulfilled prophecies. Because they were a stiff-necked, obstinate people. And that is why he spent so much effort in these chapters explaining that he had given them prophecies like no other God could because they were a difficult, disobedient people. There is a trend today that preaching needs to be encouraging. Preaching needs to be kind and comforting. And yet the Bible says that they will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is something that needs to be endured. And even though in these 40s of the book of Isaiah, in these chapters where God is promising them deliverance from Babylon and greater things by Messiah, He still takes His people to task repeatedly. He did it in chapter 47. He did it in 46. And so here it is. 
He's going to say three bad things about them in these eight verses I'm about to read to you. And this is the way of Bible preaching. The last thing we need to be told today when we come in here is that we're just beautiful people. And you should just look in the mirror and smile at what a good person you are. We need to be reminded about what a great God He is Amen. and how we need to change to match up with His expectations for us. Right. So here we go in the first lesson and of eight verses. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee. Lest thou shouldest say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. Thou hast heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. They are created now, and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest them not, lest thou shouldest say, Behold, I knew them. Yea, thou heardest not. Yea, thou knewest not. Yea, from that time that thine ear was not opened. For I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously, and was called a transgressor from the womb. You've been bad since you were born. How's that for a kind and comforting word from the Lord in the chapters of comfort? Comfort ye my people. In Isaiah the 40s, this is the lesson. And we want to keep this in mind so that we always know the proper balance of Bible preaching. There's a great deal of reproof and rebuke in it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So here we go in the first lesson. And God has to reprove his people, though he's comforting them with deliverance from Babylon, and he's comforting them with the arrival of Messiah, he has to reprove them for being so stiff-necked and stubborn that he had to take ten chapters of Isaiah to outline how he told them things in advance before the prophecies were fulfilled, because they would have tried to misconstrue them any way they could to ascribe them to their idols, or to ascribe them to their own knowledge of coming events. So this rising of Cyrus the Persian, and the taking of Media, and the taking of Lydia, then the taking of Babylon, was such a surprise, God arranged it that way, I did it suddenly. No one could have figured this one out. You didn't know a thing about it. The Babylonians didn't know a thing about it. As we read last 
Sunday in chapter 47. They and all their soothsaying astrologists couldn't figure out what was coming. But now you people, I've done it this way because I know you. And so there's a lot of reproof in the first eight verses. It gets better. It gets better. He's going to tell them, I'm going to forgive you in verses 9 through 11. But let me tell you something. I'm not forgiving you because you're good. I'm not forgiving you because you're repentant. I'm forgiving you because I've got to protect my own name. And that is something to use when you're reasoning with the Lord in prayer. But let's not let him have to resort to that. Let us let him bless the righteous in this place. Not because we're inherently righteous, but because we righteously obey his righteous commandments. He calls them to hear. The previous chapter was about God destroying Babylon for Babylon's cruelty and Babylon's sorcery. And he starts a new lesson from Isaiah calling his people to hear what they had rejected. Verse 1 is so painful to read. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah. These are the Jews. This is the nation of Israel. But it's more, it's more specific than that. These are not the ten tribes that went elsewhere under Shalmaneser the Assyrian. These are those of the tribe of Judah. That's why it says they came out of the waters of Judah. The waters, like Proverbs chapter 5, and like other places, describe a man's progeny. In Proverbs chapter 5, the lesson by Solomon is, marry a legitimate woman, have children, and flood the streets with your kids. And so it's the waters of Judah, because these were Jews from Judah that were captive in Babylon. They weren't the ten tribes that had been scattered all over the place by the Assyrians. They swear by the name of the Lord, and that is an act of worship. To swear by the name of Jehovah is an act of worship, and it's still something done in our nation. Place your left hand in the Bible, raise your right hand to heaven, as it were, and swear. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And with your hand in the Bible, what God is it? Buddha? Vishnu? Rama? Allah? The Great Spirit? No. It's the Lord Jehovah. And it still goes on in our country. The Lord's got to be pleased in that respect. He's not pleased in the last part of this verse when they do it not in truth and not in righteousness, but the fact that we still give lip service to God in our courts where we are claiming the authority to judge men. So they swear in this verse, swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel. We have come in here this morning and we have all made mention of the God of Israel. We have made mention of God in our singing. We have made mention of God in our praying. We have made mention of God in our conversations. We are making mention of God right now and you're hearing the mention of God. You're here to have God mentioned. If we're going to mention God, we better live up to His holy name. As these first verses are going to tell us. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 1. I seldom ask you to turn in this expository sermon series to other places because of the time consumed. But turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let me remind you of the God that we're dealing with, who's going to be mentioned, who they swore by. You know, it's one thing to put your left hand in the Bible, raise your right hand to heaven, 
and say, so help me God. But are you giving God the obedience that he deserves and has expects from his word? Verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 1, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, we've made mention of God. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We can come back to Isaiah. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear because of this God. It is not enough to swear in His name. It is not enough to make mention of Him. But they were doing it not in truth nor in righteousness. They were giving lip service to Him. And brethren, you need to be asking yourself how much of my religion is lip service and how much of my religion is heart devotion. Preacher, how do I know how much is heart devotion? By the degree you obey Him outside of this assembly. In your speech, as you just heard. In where you put your confidence, as you just heard. In your degree of praising and trusting in the Lord outside of this place. This is a terrible verse the way it ends up. They gave Him lip service and they made mention of God. And we make mention of God, but let us make sure we make mention of Him in truth and in righteousness. Let us always speak the truth, live the truth, practice the truth, and deal righteously in all of our relationships and in everything we do, from our thoughts to our hands, everything. Be righteous. Or we're giving Him lip service, and He does not like lip service. Isaiah 29 and verse 13 told us about that lip service where he said, I will proceed to do a marvelous work. And that is, he was going to give them blindness so that they would stagger around like drunken men, but not with wine. It would be his judgment upon them. If we want to be saved from God's judgment and have his blessing upon us, we want to swear in his name. We want to make mention of our God. But we need to do it in truth and in righteousness. Lip service is terrible, and God often condemned this error on the part of the Jews. And there are many places that we could go. And what I just quoted from Isaiah 29, the Lord Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 15, and again in Mark chapter 7, because it was so important the Jews gave so much lip service to God, but not their lives. Verse 2 goes on to describe the same persons, but it switches to the third person instead of the second person. I want you to learn that about reading prophecy and reading books like Isaiah. Hear this, O house of Jacob, is verse 1. That's Israel in the second person. In verse 2, for they call themselves of the holy city. That's in the third person. They say, we're of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's city on earth, and we're citizens there. We're from the tribe of Judah. We're Jews that live in Jerusalem We've got it made. We've got it made in the shade. Because this is God's city, and He's going to protect us. And they stay themselves upon the God of Israel. God will protect us. We're okay. 
In Jeremiah 7, it's the temple. Here, it's the city. Here, it's God. In Jeremiah 7, it's the temple. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. That's just how it's worded. And God said to those Jews, why don't you go to Shiloh and see what I did to the worship place that was there. I'm going to do the same thing to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And he did it. He tore it down. He tore Solomon's temple down by Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian. The Lord of hosts is his name. That's why I read to you 1 Peter chapter 1, our God is holy. And he wants us to be holy like he is holy. The Lord of hosts is his name. He is not some ordinary God that you can get away with living any way that you choose. So this is the warning and the reproof given to the nation starting out this chapter with its lessons for us. They were hypocrites. They were giving him lip service, but they weren't giving him their lives. They call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. Do you call yourself a Christian? So what? You're a church member here? So what? We have a great deal of true doctrine? So what? It doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is, are you living in truth and righteousness? And so we've got to be careful. There's warnings here for us. I don't want us to read this and have me explain it to you for some intellectual exercise over 22 verses. I want us to see the warnings that he gave them that we should take to ourselves. The Lord of hosts is his name. That was New Testament that said, pass the time. You know, there's some of you in here that don't have any more time. There's some of you in here that have a lot of time. The time of life. Pass the time of your sojourning. Brother Adam a few weeks ago told us that we're strangers and pilgrims in this world. And we're sojourners here. But our time of sojourning ought to be done in fear because he's a holy God and we can't give him lip service. Or he'll punish us for it, and he should, and rightly so. He is holy. Verse 3, he start, he, this is one of the verses where he describes prophecy and its fulfillment. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them, I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. I told you stuff from the beginning. I've told you stuff from the beginning of the world. I've told you stuff from the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. I laid it out there. I declared it. You had word, verbal descriptions of events that were going to come to pass, and I brought them to pass. Because, why did God put so much effort Unfulfilled prophecy for these Jews? Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. Now that's not very nice, to talk that way about a congregation. Hearken, hear me, people. Come and let me preach to you. You're obstinate. And I knew you were obstinate. So I had to alter my method of dealing with you and give you many fulfilled prophecies to try to get your attention. But I had to be careful in giving you those fulfilled prophecies because you would try to ascribe them to your idol God or you would try to say, I knew that was going to happen. And so God did things that no one could know about Cyrus the Persian. And that is why I 
with the Word of God have hammered you nicely, have hammered you to learn about Cyrus because it was a tremendous event. Babylon sat there so secure that on the night they were taken, they were having a party with a thousand lords of the Babylonians and Chaldeans. They did not think it could happen in a thousand years. The Lord did it that way because of these stubborn people. Oh, let's not be stubborn like they were. Oh, Lord, let's not. He doesn't have to alter anything for us, does he? Just give us the word of God, Lord, and we'll do it. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Lord, what wilt thou have thy servant to do? Lord, what will you have me to do? That is the way we should be. Let's not be like these Jews. Let's make mention of God and make mention of God often. Let's speak often one to another and have our names written in his book of remembrance. But let's have them written there because we're living in truth and righteousness as well. I knew that you were bad in verse 4, and that's why I did it that way. And so verse 5 is another description of prophecy. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee. Before it happened, and before you could see it developing, and before you could see the probability of it, I declared that it was going to happen. This is so beautiful. As the Lord, we've, haven't we already learned this? Didn't chapter 40, 41, 42, and so forth already talk about fulfilled prophecy? Mm-hmm. Fulfilled prophecy is the tens, the 40s, the 10 chapters of Isaiah. And he's giving us one of the reasons why. Now, there's other reasons. He wants the whole world to know that I am the Lord and there is no other God. I'm the first, I'm the last, and I can't find anyone else. And come here, all you nations, and let's have an assembly and a debate, because there's no one else that can declare the future like I can. And here he does it in verse 5, and he explains why. Lest thou shouldest say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. There in verse 5. Remember back in 43.12, if you flip back to 43.12, I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. I, I gave you some of my prophecies when it was a period in your life that you were no longer guilty of idolatry. One thing about the Jews, after the Babylonian captivity, they were not guilty of idolatry. Up, into, up to the Babylonian captivity, and they went into captivity because of their idolatry, they were idolaters left and right. They were idolaters in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. And they were idolaters, but after that they weren't. They were just hypocrites. And they had the traditions of the elders that undermined the word of God a different way. They just found themselves a different way to go about fulfilling their lusts, their own way, the way they define sins. Thou shalt not commit adultery was the overt act they could cover with an appropriate divorce. They could cover with lust. They could, cover, they could have fantasies. They could have lust. And so they learned how to manipulate the Word of God. And so it was a little different. But back to chapter 48 of Isaiah. Verse 6. Thou hast heard. See all this. You know, I told you this was going to happen. That Cyrus was going to come. Thou hast heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it? Aren't you going to shout this from the housetops? This is fabulous stuff. And it was. For the Lord to, 
identify a man a hundred years before he was born by name. I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. They were not there when I started this message with you. When I started Isaiah's message with you, these things were not there. There wasn't even a Babylon that was worth talking about. Nineveh of the Assyrians ruled the world. Babylon was just a province. They are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest them not. Lest thou shouldest say, Behold, I knew them. He knew that they would say that they knew them unless he made it very clear that he declared them before there was any sign of them. It's just fabulous. This is, this is one of our rules of, of or axioms or methods of apologetics is fulfilled prophecies. God has declared certain things in the Bible when there was no sign of that particular event coming to pass and then he ordered it to come to pass and it came to pass and the fulfillment is spectacular so that you cannot say, I knew that was going to happen. No one could say that about Cyrus the Persian. God named him a hundred years before he was born. Who's going to say, I knew it? You didn't even know the man, had, the man didn't have a birth certificate yet for a century. The Lord's great and glorious. Amen. And he's boasting of himself here, and he's reproving his people for not trusting him and for not wanting to get up and shout about his fulfilled prophecies. Verse 8, Yea, thou heardest not, you didn't have a clue. Yea, thou knewest not. Yea, from that time that thine ear was not opened, before I told you anything to go in your ear, for I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. A few weeks ago, another brother, Brother Newell, reminded you of rude preachers. And I want you to think about that as just a sidelight of these eight verses and of how rough Isaiah and God is with the people that God is now forgiving and bringing out of Babylon and patting them on their back saying everything's going to be okay. But while I'm patting you on the back and telling you everything's going to be okay, I just want to remind you, you are a difficult people, and I've adjusted my methods of dealing with you by giving you fulfilled prophecies that could not be ascribed to your idols and could not be ascribed to your foresight of things happening in world history. Amen. Yes, Lord. But let's not let that be true of us. Let's swear in the name of the Lord Jehovah, and let's make mention of God in truth and righteousness. And let's not be obstinate. When He tells us to do something, let's do it. When He shows us something new in the Bible, let's do it. Let's flush the past. Let's be fluid to a degree. Oh, we're going to hold fast the faithful things that we believe right now. But when he shows us a tsunami of evidence, we want to change. And in our lives, we want to change. And I hope that because of Psalm 52, you're thinking about your speech, and you're thinking about your confidence and trust, and you're thinking about your degree of praise and trust in all the events that take place by the Lord's hand. So that we do not have him speaking this way about us. Let's have him delighting in us. He delights in those that hope in His mercy. Amen. Let's come to the next lesson. Isaiah 48 and verse 9. Before I let you do that, in verse 1, 
God called them to listen to him. God asks us to hear him by scripture, by preaching, by parents, by conscience. Are you listening to him in all those ways? Making mention of God and giving him lip service is not nearly enough. Stating trust in God and his institutions or ordinances mocks his great holiness. They stayed themselves upon the Lord and they trusted in the city that they were citizens of. But the Lord is holy. And that is why it was added in there at the end of verse 2. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is a holy God that we're dealing with. You can't just make mention of his name. And you can't just trust in his city. And you can't just stay upon him saying, God bless America. Why should God bless America? I resent that every time I hear it. I appreciate things like left hand the Bible and right hand up. So help me God. But when they're saying that God bless America as if America deserves God's blessing. He doesn't deserve God's blessing. Let's get more serious than that and repent. God judge America if we don't repent would be better. Do you appreciate the fulfilled prophecies of God's word against any unbelief? Let's be believers of the Bible. Why would we, like Israel, ever be obstinate against the greatest and gentlest being in the universe? And so forth and so on. God knows everything about your character and conduct from birth. So let's repent of those things that he doesn't approve of. Verse 9 through 11. This second lesson, God would end their chastening for himself. He's going to show them mercy and he's going to deliver the Jews out of Babylon, but he's going to do it for his own namesake, not because they deserved it, or were good, or even repentant, in the fullest sense of repentance that he expects. Verse 9. For my namesake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Now this is simple enough. I'm going to rescue you out of Babylon. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem for my name's sake. Because everyone in the world knows that you worship a God named Jehovah. And if I don't get you out of Babylon and get you out of Babylon in a spectacular way, they'll think I'm just like their gods and the nation is lost and Israel is over with because their God couldn't deliver them like the gods of the nations couldn't deliver those nations from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Do you remember all that reasoning? No God can deliver out of my hand. Well, the Lord says, for my own namesake, I'm going to do this. This this lesson here in verses 9 through 11 is very simple. For my namesake, I'm going to defer my anger. I'm not going to let all of it go against you because of the nature of your people. In the first eight verses, I should grind you to powder because how obstinate you are against all my favor and blessings. I'm going to defer my anger, 
and for my praise will I refrain for thee. I will pull back on my anger and the chastening that I'm pouring out upon you in Babylon for my praise. I want my name to be praised in the earth. I don't want it to be polluted anymore that I couldn't get my people, my church, my nation, away from the Babylonians and back to Jerusalem. So I'm going to do it for my own sake. This is a powerful reason when you're praying. David did it so many times in his prayer. Look at uh, Psalm 25. Just, just a couple quick ones. In Psalm 25, when you're praying with the Lord, tell Him, show Him, that what you're asking is for greater glory for Him. That it's not just for you to consume something on your lusts, but it's for His greater glory. Right. Psalm 25, verse 11, For Thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. Lord, You can get glory if You'll forgive me and pardon me of my sins. 25.11. Look at 79 and verse 9. Psalm 79 and verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name. And deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Notice he uses it twice in one verse. This is a way to, to reason with the Lord. If you'll do this, it will get you glory. Twice here in 79.9. 143 11 Psalm 143 and verse 11 quicken me O Lord for thy name's sake for thy righteousness sake bring my soul out of trouble Lord I'm yours I'm in trouble if you'll bring me out of trouble it's gonna give honor and glory to your name and so it's a powerful way of reasoning with the Lord and the Lord gives it away right here in these verses 9 through 11 in Isaiah 48 because it's for this reason that He is going to deliver people that were not worthy of being delivered. I will defer mine anger, not because 70 years is long enough, because I can't let my name be polluted any longer. As He says in verse 11, for how should my name be polluted? That's people saying, oh, they're God's Jehovah. They couldn't stop our armies at all. Nebuchadnezzar went in there and destroyed their city, and every vessel they had in their temple for the worship of their God, Jehovah, is in our archives and in our vaults. We've got it all. It was polluting his name. He couldn't stand that. And so for us to tell him, Lord, this situation is polluting your name. Will you vindicate yourself in this matter so that your name is no longer polluted? It's a powerful way to ask the Lord to come to you a rescue. It's for His name's sake that I'm going to defer mine anger and I'm going to refrain from punishing you. I should cut you off. Verse 9, I should cut you off, but I'm going to refrain from doing it so that I can get some praise out of this. And, and the praise He got was, listen, we're still praising Him 2,500 years later because of the way Cyrus the Persian took the city of Babylon and released the Jews and sent them back to Jerusalem. It's still a spectacular event in, in world history. Verse 10, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. Silver is not a refining, is not a refining method. Silver is not a refining means. So when it says, I have refined thee, but not with silver, it means I didn't burn you as long as you have to burn 
silver with the heat thereof to get rid of all the dross that's in silver, or I would have burned you up because of the dross that is mentioned in verses 1 through 8. So I refined you like silver, but I didn't refine you with silver, where I would have left you in the blast furnace long enough to get rid of all the dross because it would have burned you up because the previous verse said, I would have cut you off. And it says, I've chosen you out of the house of affliction. I'm pulling you out now by my choice. I'm not pulling you out because you're pure and there's no dross left. I'm making a choice to pull you. I hope you can see this by looking at the connection of the verses. For my own sake, in verse 11, even for my own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted and I will not give my glory unto another? Because there the Babylonians were with Belshazzar leading the show, lifting up the vessels from Jerusalem and toasting their gods. I can't let that go on. So I'm going to stop it and I'm going to make a choice to yank you out of the furnace of affliction. I'm not going to let you stay in there like silver or there wouldn't be anything left. I'm not going to cut you off like you deserve after all I've done for you. I'm going to rescue you. So that's verses 9 through 11. Thank you, Lord. Has the Lord ever rescued you like that? When you didn't really deserve it and your repentance was a little bit short of perfect? Have you ever repented perfectly? Oh, He's so merciful. He's so merciful and so gracious. Thank you, blessed God, for your kindness. God's gifts of salvation and earthly kindness are for His glory, not your pleasure. We should always remember that. This is an axiom of our worldview. And it's one of the top axioms right here. God does things for His namesake. We want to preach it, live it, see it, behold it, look for it, perceive it in the world that God does things for His glory. If ordinary chastening would destroy your spirit, God draws you out of the fire before that would happen. Flip ahead. Can we cheat? Can we cheat? Well, if we go ahead in Isaiah, it's cheating. Let's go ahead to Isaiah 57. Let's cheat a little bit. I just want you to see some comfort in this verse. It's about God applying His chastening to us, and we really haven't responded the way we should have, and sometimes He pulls, it, pulls us out anyway. Here's why. The reason why in Isaiah 48 was for His namesake, for His praise, so that His name wouldn't be polluted anymore. Here's another one, because you'd burn up. Isaiah 57, verse 16, For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth, for the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. Isn't that, I'm so glad, I'm so glad that the God of glory and the God of judgment is also the God of reason, kindness, and mercy and is able to look at me and discern I could be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow and my spirit could be broken. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 2 how he told the church at Corinth why they should bring that incestuous fornicator back in because that punishment that was inflicted by many is about to swallow him up with overmuch sorrow the lord sees things like that and so tells the church listen he's broken he's humble enough he's repentant enough bring him back in love him forgive him and comfort him and that's what the lord's doing to us right now with verses 9 through 11 
because you haven't always repented with the humility and the devotion and the zeal that you should have with God's dealings in your life. Yet he refrains himself for praise and for purposes of not destroying you. If ordinary chastening does not yield fruits of godliness, you may have to endure more. Don't let me just show you one side of God's chastening. If one degree doesn't work, he can bring a little bit more to bear on you to get you on your knees to repent. And we read that in the history of Israel as well. So we come to verse 12. God proved his love for Israel by sending Cyrus to deliver them because, according to verse 10, he had made a choice to yank them out of the furnace of affliction. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Think about the words. Hadn't God chosen Israel a long time before? Like, like way back? Like with Abraham? Like with Isaac? One of eight sons of Abraham? Hadn't that one, isn't that when God chose them? So what does it mean right here? I just explained what it meant, but I want you to learn how to read and think. I have chosen thee in the fur furnace of affliction. Well, no, you didn't. You chose us before the furnace of affliction. The reason we're in the furnace of affliction is because we're your chosen people and you're trying to chasten the dross out of us. The point being, and I've already said it once, but I've made a choice right now that though the chastening and the refining is not complete like it should be with silver, I'm going to yank you out anyway. I've chosen to yank you out of the furnace of affliction. And I'm so... Were there times when you thought, I don't know if I can bear this? Every one of you, have there been times in your life where you thought, I don't know if I can bear this? More than one? Have you ever said the words, I can't bear this? Why are you here? Oh, blessed God. I've got you. That's a gotcha. That you ever said to yourself, I can't bear this, but you're here. You did bear it because he helped you bear it and he pulled his hand off and he chose you out of the furnace of affliction I'm sorry that Isaiah 48 is so pitiful I speak as a fool I love Isaiah 48 too verses 12 through 15 God proved his love for Israel by sending Cyrus verse 12 Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. Now, wait a minute, Lord. You just ripped us in verses 1 through 8. You told us in 9 through 11, we're still not pure, and you're only saving us for your namesake. There's two sides to this coin. He's going to say some nice things now. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. All ye, assemble yourselves and hear. Which among them hath declared these things? The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arms shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous." Folks, come and hear me. The Lord is saying to the Jews in Babylon, come and hear me. I've called you. You're my people. I'm your God. I'm the first. I'm the last. There is no other. It's time for me to get some praise for myself by choosing you out of the furnace of affliction in Babylon and bringing you back to your home in Jerusalem of Judah. And I'm going to do that. 
Listen, I'm the creator of the heaven and the earth. And you know that because you have in your scrolls, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You know your God is the creator. Now get excited, folks, because I'm going to do it. I have found me a man that I love. It is a great hunting rifle. Some of you are looking ahead at verse 14, where it says that God loves Cyrus, and that is Cyrus, and that is the word love. And it doesn't bother me a bit, and it shouldn't bother you, because in context, it is like you looking at a rifle and saying, I love this rifle. How many wives, well, <laughs> that depends on the wife and the husband. How many wives have been jealous when the husband said, I love this rifle? Did any woman think, he doesn't love me anymore? Does any woman think, he loves that rifle as much as he loves me? Follow with me, please. How did God love Cyrus? God loved Cyrus as the tool that he was going to use to raise out of total obscurity that would take media, Lydia, and then the Babylonians in such a surprise fashion, no one would figure it out. God just thought it was the greatest thing he'd come up with in a while. That's how he loved him. He loved him like a, a fine rifle. I'm not going to play, I don't have to play games. I can just look at the context and know that he didn't love him with an everlasting love. There was no change in Cyrus's life. There's not a thing in the Bible that tells me that Cyrus has his name in the book of life. You say, well, then that's a contradiction in the Bible. Is it really a contradiction in the Bible? The Bible tells me that I'm supposed to love my enemies and that God gave me an example of how to love my enemies because he sends his sunshine and his rain on the evil and the good. Right. He has a benevolence toward all of his creatures, including the animals, the irrational spirits and animals. He's got that kind of love toward them. But his everlasting love, his sacrificial love of sending his son to die for them, his covenant love of having them with him forever and eternity, that is a totally different category of love and a use of that word. If we didn't have the same use of words for different concepts, we wouldn't have a reason to rightly divide the word of truth. I don't want to spend any more time on this. If you want to look at an outline page and see all the reasons why, but the love in verse 14 is just the love of Cyrus as a fine hunting rifle, then wait for that outline. I want you to look at verses 12 through 15 and see God's affection for Israel that though they had problems in verses 1 through 8 and were obstinate and difficult, and though he was only going to reduce and, and eliminate the chastening for his own glory, he was going to do it in spectacular fashion because he was their God, he was their creator God, and he was their savior God. And he would save them by this savior of Cyrus the Persian. And so that's verses 12 through 15. He tells them to come together. Verse 14, all ye assemble yourselves and hear. Which among them hath declared these things? All these other gods, all these other nations, all these soothsayers, how many of them have figured out what I'm going to do with Cyrus? Because I've named him 100 years before he was born. Listen, folks, I know that what I said in verses 1 through 8 was rough. I know that what I said in verses 9 through 11, you still got problems. But I'm here for you because I'm your God. I called you. You're my people. I'm the first and the last. There is no other God. I created everything. Now listen, I got to go back to verse 13. There's part of verse 13 that I love. Is there part of verse 13 that you love? What part of verse 13 do you love? That God's hand laid the foundation of the earth? Amen. Oh, you'd love it all. Oh, you're, that's cheating. You know how I mean that. 
And my right hand hath spanned the heavens. Remember a span? A span is the distance between your little finger and your thumb. When it's stretched out, it's nine inches. I span the heavens with this. That's still not the best part of verse 13. What's the best part of verse 13? When I call unto them, they stand up together. Is that beautiful? When I call the heavens, they all jump up and say, how high, sir? Jump. How high? That is just plain beautiful. And so God was able to say, Cyrus, stand up. That's a whole lot easier than the stars, the planets, and the interstellar uh, bodies of this universe. That's our God. And that's a, that was the God of the Jews. And he's comforting them. I'm your God. I'm going to take care of you. You don't really deserve it, but I'm going to do it for my namesake. And let's be honest. All the blessings that we have, is it because we deserve them? Or all the blessings we have, are they because that God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, patience, puts up with us, and still saves us by mercy in Christ Jesus? Right. It's by His mercy. I love verse 13. When I call unto them, they stand up together. How many sit down and rebel? It says they stand up together. They all obey. And then verse 14 says, I've got another one who's going to obey. The Lord hath loved him in the middle of verse 14. This is Cyrus. It's third person, singular male pronoun. Look at how the verse starts, speaking to the Jews. All ye, second person, assemble yourselves and hear. Which among them hath declared these things? The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon. Who is going to do pleasure on Babylon? Cyrus. His arms shall be on the Chaldeans. Cyrus can't be God because God's addressing this person. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. He is going to succeed in what I've given him to do, and that's to ruin Babylon. And notice the words of that 15th verse. I, even I, have spoken, the creator of the universe, that orders all the planets and stars to stand up, and they stand up together. Yea, I have called him Cyrus. I have brought him. And he shall make his way prosperous. He'll be successful because I will enable him. So we come to the next lesson. So many things could be said there. Do you trust and love that God that's just described there? You shouldn't worry about it. God is able to raise up the president that we have, the president that we had before this one, and the president that we're going to have after this one. He's able to speak, and, and the, the whole universe stands up together. And when he speaks to men, they stand up and obey. Right. And we're not talking about his revealed will when men rebel and do not stand up and obey. We're talking about his secret will when he commands things and says, I know the end from the beginning and declaring those things which be not yet done, they shall pass. They shall occur. Like 46, 9 through 11. It's right across the page. At least it is in my Bible. 46 and verse 11, calling a ravenous bird from the east. That's Cyrus the Persian. Iran is east of Iraq. The man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. That's the surety of Cyrus delivering the Jews. So we come to verse 16, and here he goes again. And this is the book of Isaiah. The Lord was rough on them in verses 1 through 8. Told them, I'm going to stop my chastening in verses 9 through 11. Told them, I'm going to save you by Cyrus in 12 through 15. I've got the perfect deliverer. 
I love this guy. Do you know, do you know what we mean when we say something like that? I love this guy. Does that mean that a wife should fear that her husband may be, I love this guy. It's totally different. Can you understand that about the Bible? You know, we could wreck ourselves right now in verse 14 by thinking there's a contradiction in the scriptures, but there isn't. I love this rifle. It's going to do a job on that elephant. And the elephant's babbling. He's going to do a job on it. I hope, that, I hope I've explained enough about that. I'm sorry for even going back to it. But now here comes the Lord, and he's got a little bit more to say to them. You know, folks, as I'm talking about having to choose you out of the furnace of affliction and having to save you and giving you all these prophecies because you're so stubborn, do you know that the reason you were in Babylon was your own fault? Do you know that if you'd have kept my commandments, you'd have had the good life? That's the next lesson. The next lesson at verses 16 through 19, Israel's disobedience forfeited God's blessings. Have you realized God's best for your life? God's best for your life is very good. You say, but some of the great heroes in the Bible and some of the martyrs that we read about, they died. They were the happiest people on earth. That's God's best for their lives. Here we go, verse 16. Come ye near unto me. This is the third time in this chapter God has said, come here because I want to talk to you. It's the fourth time. Come ye near unto me. Hear ye this. When we come to church, we should come with the spirit of Samuel. Speak, Lord. For thy servant heareth. Did you come that way this morning? If you didn't come that way this morning, be that way right now. Tell him, I'm sorry, Lord, for not coming that way. Because four times in this chapter he says, "Come come here and listen. Let me give you another lesson. Come ye near unto me. Oh, I love that. Near. I could we could preach on it for 30 minutes. Come ye near unto me. Do you want to be near the Lord? How do we get near Him? We get near Him in prayer. We get near Him in reading His Word. We get near Him in meditation. We get near Him in coming into His house. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and His Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Look at the exclamation point. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Amen and amen. The trouble in your life is your fault. The reason you were in Babylon and I had to pull you out and had to send Cyrus is because you needed to go there because you were bad. But I've been with you from the beginning. I am your God. I'm the God of the burning bush. I am the God of there am I. I am that I am. I'm that God. And now I'm sending Isaiah to you. And if you'll just do what I'm telling you to do, you can prosper. My words are for your profit. He said in verse 18, 
Now verse 17, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. And then that exclamation point in verse 18, Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. You'd have never seen the inside of Babylon. They'd have never touched Jerusalem. Your, your progeny and your family tree would have been unbelievable. It'd have been like the sand by the seashore. It'd be like the gravel, the larger sand by the seashore, coming out of your own bowels. I would have blessed you in every way possible if you'd have just followed my word. The reason that we're having to have this exchange, my people of Israel, is because you didn't keep my commandments. I was with you from the beginning. I chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. I chose Moses. I got you out of Egypt. But you wouldn't keep my commandments. Let this be a warning to us. Have you realized God's best for your life? To the degree you have not realized God's best for your life is your fault. God's best for your life is not just measured by a bank statement. God's best for your life is not just measured, though this is included, your relationships. God's best for your life is your joy in the Lord. There's all the, have you realized God's best for your life? If you'll humble yourself before His commandments, He gave you His commandments, He's appeared to you, the reason you're not a Muslim is because He wants to make your life great. He's already come to you. I was with you from the beginning. I'm the one that teaches you. If you'll just keep my little rules about how to navigate through life, you can have the best life for you. The reason you were in Babylon is because you didn't keep my commandments. I teach you to profit, verse 17. I lead you in the way you should go. Your peace had been a river, verse 18. Listen, if you don't have peace in your life right now, it doesn't matter what happens in your life. You can still have peace even when bad things happen. Even when people leave you. Even when children leave you. You can still have peace in your life. You can have peace in your life like a river. You can have peace in your life like a river. You can have peace in your life like a river. You. You can have peace in your life like a river. By obeying Him. Look at these blessings. A huge family tree, peace like a river, profit, and knowing where to go every day because the Lord's taught you. Let's be those people. Let's be those people. Look at that. Thy peace had been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Our practical righteousness would be like an ocean. Because we're just doing things the Lord's way instead of our way. And then we'd have this huge family tree in verse 19. And so there the lesson is, God reminds them, you know why you were in Babylon? It wasn't my fault. I tried to keep you out of there, and I really wanted you to have a better life than that. But I've jerked you out of the furnace of affliction anyway, because I'm not going to burn you up, and I'm not going to cut you off. So, But you know it really was your fault, and if you want to make things better and really have the good life, then obey me. All I want is your best. My commandments are not grievous. My yoke is not heavy. My burden is light. Try it my way. I wish I knew how to preach it to you. And then we can learn something. The last lesson. Cyrus brought peace, but not to wicked Jews. Do you see all that blessing 
that he's going to call down upon the Jews in Cyrus, back there in verses 14 and 15, he's going to, Cyrus is going to be successful. I've called him. And he's going to make his, his way is going to be prosperous. He's going to succeed and get you back to Jerusalem. But here's a warning. Verse 20, go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. Jews, I'm going to rescue you. With a voice of singing, declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth. Say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And that's redemption out of Babylon, obviously by the context. And they thirsted, and when he led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also, and the waters gushed out. Not only did he deliver them out of prison, he took care of them after they were out when they didn't have any means of their own. He did it once in Egypt. He did it again after the captivity, the thousand-mile trek back to Judah and Jerusalem. He took care of them and provided for their every need, even durable clothing. If you remember what we've learned already in Isaiah. And so there should be shouting and there should be singing. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans, back there in verse 20, with a voice of singing declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, the Lord hath redeemed. Because the Lord saved them out of Babylon. They couldn't have done it. They couldn't have bought it. They couldn't have fought it. It had to be by Cyrus the Persian in unique circumstances to happen in one night. And it did. I made it happen suddenly. I did it suddenly and delivered you out of that place. And so this is the celebration as Isaiah chapter 48 comes to a close. Get out of Babylon. Get away from the Chaldeans. Go back home. The Lord's redeemed you. He has bought you out of that prison and he's going to take care of you all the way back and provide your needs. We don't read of anywhere in the Bible that actual rocks were opened up for water to flow out to them, but we do read about nations giving them help and tax revenue beyond the river being used for their enablement to get back and have enough for animals being given to them to be able to offer and sacrifice. We read about things like that. We know that rocks were opened up coming out of Egypt and the two are being combined together here as God not only delivers his people out of two furnaces of affliction, and Egypt was also called a furnace of affliction, he not only delivers them out of it, but he takes care of them after that when they have nothing to take care of themselves. And so it's all wonderful. Everybody lives happily ever after. No. Verse 22. There is no peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked. Anyone still in the church whose heart was not right with God, this is not for them. There is no peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked. Peace can flow like a river when you're obeying. And I have great things in store for my church. But those in my church that are still wicked, there is no peace, saith the Lord, to the wicked. These great things that I'm going to do, they only apply to the righteous. They may get out of Babylon. They may make it back to Jerusalem. But they're going to get in trouble there because there is no peace, saith the Lord, to the wicked. So let us remember that when we're in America and we are not in a furnace of affliction, we are in a furnace of luxury. We are in a furnace of prosperity. Let us remember, there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. Let's not be guilty 
of going against any of God's commandments, lest he take away our peace while we live in a land of plenty where we ought to have peace. He's given us so much, but he can take away your peace unless you humble yourself before him completely and cast yourself upon him with no one else mattering except him. He'll give you peace. If you do it less than that, there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. It's added in there that these general blessings upon the 45,000 that came back did not apply to rebels. And if you will read the word of God in Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi, there were yet enemies in that nation of 45,000 that had no peace, saith my God. Let us make sure and let us encourage one another that in this church, everyone will have peace because everyone will keep the way of the Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.